Section 8 of the Roman Empire of the Second Century by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Hadrian, AD 117 to 138, Part 3. He was courteous and kindly to his friends, granting them readily the boons they asked, yet he listened with open ears to scandalous stories to their hurt and few even of the most favoured escaped at last without disgrace shrewd and hard-headed as he was he believed in necromancy magic and astrology and after making much of keeping up the purity of the old national faith he allowed the flattery of his people to canonize antinous the minion who won his love in later years in fine says one of the oldest writers of his life after reckoning up his fickle moods and varied graces he was everything by turns earnest and light-hearted courteous and stern bountiful and thrifty frank and dissembling wary and wanton a very chameleon with changing colours it seems as if he gathered up in his paradoxical and many-sided nature all the fair qualities and gross defects which singly characterised each of the earlier rulers yet we have grave reasons for mistrusting the accounts which reach us from such questionable sources as the poor biographies and epitomes of a much later age which often betray a fatal want of judgment while they reflect the credulous malevolence of rumour rome had no tender feelings for a ruler who seemed more at home in learned athens or in the camp among the soldiers than in the old capital of fashion and of power the idle nobles doubtless were well pleased to repeat and colour the ill-natured stories which floated in the air and in the literary circles gathered round the prince there were sensitive and jealous spirits ready to resent a hasty word and think their merits unacknowledged or to point a venomed epigram against the emperor's sorry taste hadrian was a master in the fence of words and could hit hard in repartees as when a tippling poet wrote of him in jesting strain i should not like to be a caesar roaming through the wilds of britain suffering from scythian frosts he answered in the same metre i should not like to be a florist wandering among the taverns and keeping pothouse company he may well have shown impatience at petty vanities and literary quarrels or have amused himself at their expense with scant regard for ruffled pride but if we pass from words to facts few definite charges can be brought against his dignity or justice as a prince an enlightened patron of the arts he fostered learning with a liberal bounty advancing to posts of trust the scholars whose talents he had noticed and knew how to turn their powers to practical account as when salvius julianus began probably by his direction to compile a code of equity or when he prompted arian to compose his tactics and explore the line of border forts upon the euxine or when he bade apollodorus to write his treatise on artillery polyorchetica the opening words of which though written in exile betray no personal resentment as of one suffering from a wanton wrong with that exception if it really was one there is no clear case of harshness or of cruelty to stain his memory until his reason failed in the frenzy of his dying agony to set against such rumours and suspicions 
we have proofs enough in monumental evidence and in the works which lived on after he was gone of the greatness of the sovereign who left abiding tokens of his energy strewn through all the lands of the vast empire who kept his legions in good humour though busy with unceasing drill who stamped his influence for centuries upon the forms of military service drew vast lines of fortresses and walls round undefended frontiers reorganized departments of the civil service and withal found leisure enough and width of intellectual sympathies to appreciate and foster all the higher culture of the age we may find perhaps a sort of symbol of his wide range of tastes in the arrangements of the villa and the gardens which he planned for himself in his old age at tibur tivoli no longer able with his failing strength to roam over the world he thought of gathering in his own surroundings a sort of pictorial history of the genius of each race and the national monuments of every land artists travelled at his bidding and plied their tools and reproduced in marble and in bronze the memories of a lifetime and the works of all the ages a great museum was laid out under the open sky bounded by a ring fence of some ten miles in circuit within it the old historic names were heard again but in strange fellowship as the most diverse periods of art and thought joined hands as it were to suit the emperor's fancy the parks and avenues were peopled with statues which seemed to have just left the hands of phidias or polycletus or many an artist of renown there was the academy linked in memory for ever to the name of plato there the lyceum where his scholar and his rival lectured and the porch which gave its name to the doctors of the stoic creed and the Pretanium or guildhall the centre of the civic life of athens not far away were imaged forth in mimic forms the cool retreats of tempe while the waters of a neighbouring valley bore the votaries along to what seemed the temple of serapis at canopus not content with the solid realities of earth he found room also for the shadowy forms of the unseen world the scenes of hades were portrayed as borrowed from the poet's fancy or as represented in dramatic shapes in the Eleusinian mysteries in the settings of these pictures a large eclectic taste gave itself free liberty of choice the arts of greece of egypt and of asia yielded up their stores at the bidding of a connoisseur who saw an interest or a beauty in them all the famous gardens are now a wilderness of ruins full of weird suggestions of the past over which a teeming nature has flung her luxuriant festoons to deck the fairyland of fancy but they have served for centuries as a mine which the curious might explore and the art galleries of europe owe many of their bronzes marbles and mosaics to the industry and art once summoned to adorn hadrian's panorama of the history of civilized progress among these the various statues of antinous are of most interest partly as they show the method of ideal treatment then in vogue and the amount of creative power which still remained but partly also as the symptoms of the infatuation of a prince who could find no worthier subjects for the artists of his day than the sensuous beauty of a bithynian shepherd at this time indeed his finest faculties of mind were failing and his death was drawing nigh he was seized by a painful and hopeless malady and it was time to think of choosing his successor but at first 
he could not bear the thought of any one preparing to step into his place and his jealousy was fatal to the men who were pointed out by natural claims or by the people's favour after a time he singled out a certain elias verus who had showy accomplishments a graceful carriage and an air of culture and refinement but he was thought to be a sensual selfish trifler with little trace of the manly hardihood of hadrian in his best days and few eyes save the emperor's could see his merits the world was spared the chances of a possible nero in the future the emperor himself soon found to use his own words that he was leaning on a tottering wall and that the great sums spent in donatives to the soldiers upon the adoption of the new-made caesar were a pure loss to his treasury the young man's health was failing rapidly he had not even the strength to make his complimentary speech before the senate and the dose which he took to stimulate his nerves was too potent for his feeble system and hurried the weakling to the grave before he had time to mount the throne once more the old embarrassment of choice recurred but this time with a happier issue by a lucky accident one day we read the emperor's eye fell on titus aurelius antoninus as he came into the senate house supporting the weakness of his aged father-in-law with his strong arm he had passed with unstained honour through the round of the offices of state had taken rank in the council chamber of the prince where his voice was always raised in the interest of mercy all knew his worth and gladly hailed the choice when the emperor's mantle fell upon his shoulders the formal act of adoption once completed they could wait now with lighter hearts till the last scenes of hadrian's life were over the prince's sun was setting fast in lurid cloud disease was tightening its hold upon him and bringing with it a lingering agony of torment in which his strong reason wholly lost its balance and gave way to the fitful moods of a delirious frenzy now he was prey to wild suspicions and was haunted by a mania for bloodshed now he tried to obtain relief by magic arts and incantations and at last in his supreme despair he resolved to die but his physician would not give him the fatal potion which he called for his servants shrank in terror from the thought of dealing the blow which would rid him of his pains and stole out of his grasp the dagger which he tried to use in vain he begged them to cut short his sufferings in mercy the filial piety of antoninus watched over his bedside and stayed his hand when it was raised to strike himself as he had already hid from his sight the object of his murderous suspicions but the memory of serianus whom he had slain but lately haunted in nightmares shapes the conscience of the stricken sufferer with the words which the victim uttered at the last i am to die though innocent may the gods give to hadrian the wish to die without the power he had also lucid intervals when his thoughts were busy upon the world unknown beyond the grave and the scenes that were pictured for him in the gardens of his favourite house of tivoli even on his deathbed he could feel the poet's love for tuneful phrase and the verses are still left to us which were addressed by him to his soul which pale and cold and naked would soon have to make its way to regions all unknown with none of its willem gaiety animula vagula blandula 
hospes comesques corporis quae nunca bibis in loca pallidula rigida nudula necut soles dabis iocos the end came at last at Baiae. the body was not brought in state to rome for the capital had long been weary of its ruler it forgot the justice of his earlier years and the breadth of his imperial aims and could not shake off the sense of terror of his moribund cruelty and frenzy the senators were minded even to proscribe his memory and annul his acts and to refuse him the divine honours which had been given with such an easy grace to men of far less worth they yielded with reluctance to the prayers of antoninus and dropped an official veil over the memories of the last few months influenced partly by their joy at finding that the victims whom they had mourned were living still but far more out of respect for the present emperor than the past was it popular caprice or a higher tone of public feeling owing to which rome which had borne with caligula and regretted nero could not pardon the last morbid excesses of a ruler who for one and twenty years had given the world the blessings of security and justice though hadrian cared little for state parade in life he wished to be lodged royally in death the mausoleum of augustus was already full he resolved therefore to build a worthy resting-place for himself and for the caesars yet to come a stately bridge across the tiber in the neighbourhood of the campus martius decked with a row of statues on each side was made to serve as a road of state to lead to the great tower in which his ashes were to lie above the tower stood out to view the groups of statuary whose beauty moved the wonder of the travellers of later days within was a sepulchral chamber in a niche of which was stored the urn which contained all that the flames had left of hadrian the tower was built of masonry almost as solid as the giant piles of egypt and with the bridge it has outlived the wreck of ages for almost a century it served only to enshrine the dust of emperors but afterwards it was used for other ends and became a fortress a papal residence a prison when the goths were storming rome the tide of war rolled up against the mausoleum and when all else failed the statues which adorned it were torn from their pedestals by the besieged and flung down upon their enemies below some few were found long centuries after almost unhurt among the ruins and may still be seen in the great galleries of europe the works of art have disappeared with the gates of bronze and with the lining of rich marble which covered it within and after ages have done little to it save to replace the triumphal statue of the builder with the figure of the archangel michael whom a pope saw in his vision sheathing his sword in token that the plague was stayed above the old tower that has since been called the castle of sant'angelo the policy of hadrian was one of peace through all his wide dominions a generation had grown up which scarcely knew the crash of war one race only the jewish would not rest but rose again in fierce revolt the hopes of the nation had seemingly been crushed forever by the harsh hand of titus the generals of trajan pitilessly stifled its vindictive passion that had burst out afresh in africa and cyprus it had seen in palestine the iron force of roman discipline 
and the outcasts in every land had learned how enormous was the empire and how irresistible its power yet strange to say they flung themselves once more in blind fury on their masters and refused to despair or to submit they could not bear to think that colonists were planted among the ruins of their holy city that heathen temples should be built in spots so full to them of sacred memories or that the old sound of jerusalem should be displaced in favour of the motley combination of aelia capitolina to which both the emperor and the chief god of rome lent each their quota they nursed their wrath till hadrian's back was turned and the bulk of the legions far away then at last the fire blazed out again and wrapped all palestine in flames a would-be messiah showed himself among them taking the title of bar kokba after the star whose rising they had waited for so long the multitudes flocked eagerly around his banner and akiba the great rabbi lent him the sanction of his venerated name the patriot armies needed weapons but the jewish smiths had bungled purposely in working for the roman soldiers that the cast-off arms might be left upon their hands the dismantled fortresses were speedily rebuilt the walls which titus ruined rose afresh and secret passages and galleries were constructed under the strongholds that the garrisons might find ingress and egress as they pleased they could not meet the legions in the field but tried to distract their energy by multitudinous warfare the revolt despised at first soon grew to such a height as to call for the best general of the empire and all the discipline of her armies Julius Soerus was brought from distant Britain to drive the fanatics to bay and to crush them with his overwhelming forces. One stronghold after another fell, though stubbornly defended, till the fiercest of the zealots entrenched themselves in despair at Bitar and yielded only to the last extremities of famine. The war was closed after untold misery and bloodshed and even the official bulletins avowed in their ominous change of style how great was the loss of roman life all that had been left of the holy city of the jews was swept away and local memories were quite effaced new settlers took the place of the old people statues of the emperor marked the site where the old temple stood and the spots dear to christian pilgrims were befouled and hid away from sight by a building raised in honour of mere carnal passion the Jews might never wander more in the old city of their fathers. Once only in the year were they allowed, on the anniversary of the destruction of their temple, to stand a while within the holy precincts and kiss a fragment of the venerable ruin, and mourn over the hopeless desolation of their land. Even this privilege, says Jerome, they dearly bought, for a price was set by their masters on their tears, as they had set their price of old upon the blood of Jesus. End of section 8